Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and we have a great show planned for today. But before we get going, let me do my usual announcements. The last two conferences of the year are coming up. I'm teaching my course, uh, Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers, on Thursday, December 5th in my town, Louisville, Kentucky. And then I'll be in Indianapolis, Indiana, on Friday, December 6th. And the Indianapolis location is almost sold out. We only have a few more seats. So if you are planning on coming, I just urge you to go ahead and register so you don't miss out. And, again, I'm so, so, so excited about those last two courses of the year. I also want to mention that my first course, Early Speech-Language Development, Second Theory to the Floor Expanded Edition, is on sale on DVD. And if you need more information about any of those um, continuing education events, please check that out at teachmetotalk.com. Or if you have personal questions about that, you can always email me at teachmetotalk, laura at teachmetotalk.com. All right, let's get going with today's show. We have a special guest, Tatiana. I'm so excited that you've joined me, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. I didn't even get a chance to ask you in our little introduction before the show. No, it is absolutely fine, Tatiana. That's how you pronounce it. Great, great. Well, Tatiana is a speech pathologist, and her website is so great. I just love it. It's Smart Speech Therapy, and I think that's just the best name ever. (laughs) And I asked her to come on today to talk about this series that she's hosting on her website, and it's uh, a spotlight on syndrome. So, Tatiana, welcome to the show, and go ahead and tell us about yourself and just take us right into today's topic. Oh, thank you so much, Laura, for having me. So just a little bit about myself so people know where I'm coming from. Um, Currently, I actually um, kind of wear two hats. I work in a psychiatric facility with uh, a kind of an outpatient uh, school district. That's what we are. And there I treat children, you know, with uh, with speech and language deficits secondary to psychiatric impairments, such as mood disorders, anxiety disorders, oppositional defiant disorders, and so on and so forth. Um, I also have a private practice and a blog, which is a smart speech therapy. And there I work also with some, uh, a number of specialized at-risk populations, and these include kids with uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, uh, internationally adopted kids, multicultural kids, as well as, um, you know, basically kids who are kind of don't follow that kind of um, straightforward um, typical communicative trajectory path. And that's what I am. Now, with respect to syndromes and how everything started out, one of my very first jobs out of college, it was where I did my CFY, was in... um, setting which uh, catered to very medically fragile children with um, mm-hmm. multiple diagnoses and uh, one of and um, even though I worked there for only approximately one year unfortunately I you know it was just a very very uh, 
great experience. I learned a lot about syndromes. And then, of course, I switched settings, and I started working elsewhere, but I never quite forgot that experience. And I also understand how important the knowledge of syndromes is in our field, because it basically drives absolutely all the services that we, you know, provide to these children. Right. So that is why I wanted to create the spotlight to have this information readily available for speech-language pathologists. Well, I think it's just been a great series, and I was so excited that you wanted to come on and share this information with us. And I think it's so important, particularly for speech pathologists who work in early intervention, because so many times children in that youngest developmental period at at the point that we're first seeing them, there's not even a, a suspicion of a genetic abnormality yet. We're just helping mom and dad put together that big puzzle with fine language is not coming in as expected. So I think these these characteristics of, of what to look for and uh, just along with uh, maybe even some treatment ideas are just going to be a wonderful topic for today's show. So take it away, Tatiana. I'm just going to let you just kind of control what you want to talk about and walk us through these syndromes, and I'll just jump in and ask a question, and I hope that it won't offend you if I, if I just interrupt you as I have a question as we go. No, absolutely. So uh, the first thing that I wanted to talk about that there is uh, obviously uh, syndromes, when we're speaking in very, very, very broad, very general terms, syndromes fall into two categories. You obviously have a number of genetic syndromes and which occur as a result of genetic mutations, deletions, or additions, but you also have something called the acquired syndromes. Those are those do not carry any genetic inheritance, but may be acquired as a result of some trauma, pre-birth or post-birth. For example, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is one of those disorders. It is not a genetic disorder. It is an acquired, uh, it is an acquired syndrome, which is acquired because of uh, parental consumption of alcohol pre-pregnancy. So that would fall under a different category. Um, genetic disorders would be more, um, you know, kind of a, most of us are familiar with such examples as fragile X, Down syndrome, Kleinfelter right. syndrome. Those would be some of the more familiar genetic disorders to people. Obviously, there are hundreds and hundreds more, and of course, right. depending on your setting, we really need to understand just the entire, you know, we need to understand how did this genetic syndrome occur, how as a result of that, what can we do to improve the patient's function despite having that, you know, syndrome, because even though there may be one or more genes which are altered, there are, you know, tons more which are unaltered, and we, we could use right. those to compensate for, uh, for the others in some meaningful way. Uh, genetic, of course, most genetic, uh, genetic syndromes could, um, are there are different types of genetic syndromes. You could have, um, you know, autosomal dominant, you know, syndromes, and then right. you can have autosomal recessive syndromes. Um, okay, so for those of us who, who need a review with that, and we have lots of parents who are listening to Tatiana, explain the differences in those two types, please. Okay. So um, essentially, and again, I'm not, oh, 
could I be just excused for one moment? One moment, and I'll sure. be sorry, sorry. That's okay. I'm so excited she's giving us this little uh, refresher course. For those of you who it's been years and years and years since you were in grad school, some of these things, even though Tatiana is saying they may be more common, you may not have seen a child on your caseload with these kinds of issues for I years apologize years. for that maybe. brief interruption. <laughs> so sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. Unfortunately, okay. even though... Okay. So I apologize. So That's okay. Autosomal dominant disorders, uh, basically, um, it means that one single kind of abnormal gene from either parent can cause a disorder. Uh, when okay. it comes to autosomal recessive genes, you kind of need two parents can be carriers, and when kind of their genetic DNA is combined, that's when you might have, uh, you know, that's when you might have a disorder as a result. So, for right. example, the syndromes I covered on my, um, you know, the syndromes I covered on my website already is basically uh, one of them is Treacher Collins. Mm-hmm. Well, in terms of uh, Treacher Collins, it's uh, basically all you need is having a family member with the syndrome to have it. Having said that, you can also get it because of a mutation. Right. So that would be kind of a, you know, one example. Then okay. let's say we have uh, the syndrome of what I call a very many names, you know, um, which is basically uh, DiGeorge or villocardiofacial syndrome. Right. And again, because it's called, it, this is, uh, that syndrome is called, caused by a microdeletion, which means a sm- mm-hmm. micro as in small, on the long arm of yeah. chromosome 22. So again, it's also an autosomal dominant uh, inheritance pattern, where again, a child only needs to get an abnormal gene from one parent to inherit the disease. Right. Now, right. what um, a lot of people kind of sort of in a way don't uh, realize, I guess, is that uh, even when we talk about the basic things like a specific, specific language impairment, well, for example, the children, approximately between 20, 20 to 40% of those children have a family history of language impairment. Again, right. it implies that there is a genetic component. Let's move on to kids with uh, speech sound disorders. Well, guess what? Mm-hmm. Uh, with those, 50% of kids who suffered from a kind of phonological disorder, we might later find that they will present with reading or spelling difficulties. Right, right. So, there is that. So we have, so these would be examples of kind of a multifactorial conditions which have both. Number one, genetic component, but number two, right. environmental component or the strength of, you know, intervention. Right, exactly. I think those are such important points. All right, you want to move on now to talk about specific syndromes and give us some little summary of of the ones that you've spotlighted thus far on your website, Tatiana? 
Sure. Is there any one particular you wanted me uh, to start with? I'll tell you what I have so far. I have um, Treacher Collins, DeGeorge mm -hmm. or 22Q deletion, Down syndrome, mm -hmm. spinal m muscle atrophy, or Menke's syndrome, which, by the way, is a very rare syndrome. And November, as I was told actually yesterday by a colleague, happens to be um, uh, Menke's Awareness Month. Either, however you want to do it is fine with me. I've treated children with DeGeorge syndrome, so I have some personal experience with that. And then many of us in the field, of course, have seen children with Down syndrome. So I don't know, Tatiana, you may want to start with Treacher Collins or Minkies that are more rare so that uh, there's a great idea. Yeah. Okay. So let's uh, kind of uh, start with Treacher Collins. And essentially okay. what that is, as I mentioned, it's kind of an autosomal dominant, dominant disorder. Now, mm -hmm. um, Basically, according to the statistics given to me, uh, now just to clarify, this is um, this was a guest post from from a wonderful comp uh, contributor, Amy Losey, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. L O C Y. And if I mispronounce her name, I hope she doesn't kill me. And it, she did a wonderful job on that. Now, what was very, um, you know, very uh, interesting about her experience, she went to Brazil to work to a craniofacial anomalies clinic. Mm -hmm. And her experience there, I believe, was basically in those two weeks she learned more about uh, craniofacial disorders than in several years of reading textbooks on the subject. So it's very interesting how... On, how on-the-spot experience can greatly kind of widen our horizons, you know, when it yeah. comes to specific things. But coming back to Treacher Collins, essentially it happens in approximately one of every 50,000 live births, and typically almost half the kids born with it do have a family member with a syndrome. Um, there is no difference in terms of whether it affects a specific gender or race. It affects kind of really equal distribution among, um, you know, males and females. But what's interesting mm -hmm. that it fairly frequently can co-occur with a pure band sequence, with which I'm going to talk mm -hmm. about a little bit later on. And again, treacher right. balance is definitely one of those uh, disorders which comes with quite a few kind of anomalies. It's something where when you typically look at the, you know, physical characteristics of a child, you can kind right. of uh, tell right away this is syndromic because you will clearly see interruption of, I'm sorry, interaction of multiple systems. You're going to see the oral right. cavity involved, the heart, um, you know, the physical characteristics. So you can, it's basically one of those things where you can't miss it. Now, right. um, let's talk about some facial anomalies. You have some, you know, change in the facial bones. You have um, something which is called uh, hypoplasia. Now, hypo is a term kind of a, for kind of underdevelopment or incomplete development. So what you right. basically have is un incomplete type of a development of um, facial bones, especially the jaw especially mm -hmm. the cheekbones, the face might be narrow, and mm -hmm. you might have kind of a very small chin, micrognathia, and um, you may actually have a condition called microstomia. Now, microstomia is basically a fancy word for an unusually wide mouth. Okay. 
All right. Now, so cause of these uh, certain type of deficits, you may have two subnormalities which come with that. You may have kind of a malocclusion. You may have some issues mm-hmm. with your pharynx. And um, unfortunately, a very high percentage, about 35% of individuals with Treacher Collins have a cleft palate. So now right. we're getting into full-on blown craniofacial anomalies, which require right, very specific right. type of, um, you know, remediations. Now, right. moving on, uh, kids with TCS, Treacher Collins syndrome, they could have some ear abnormalities, which may be affecting their hearing, and they may get, uh, you know, co- conductive hearing loss as well. Now, some related concerns we may have with young babies of uh, Treacher Collins is they may have quite a number of them have airway obstruction, difficulty sleeping, sleep apnea. Of course, it goes without saying they're going to have feeding difficulties as well. Right, right. Unfortunately, here we're also, because of all the physical abnormalities, we're now getting into kind of a reconstructive surgery interventions. And there's going to be, and unfortunately, quite a number of them require quite a bit of these uh, surgeries because right. you need to widen certain things. Perhaps um, you need to narrow others. You need to correct obstructions. And unfortunately, it's a significant health risk. And, of course, um, yeah, Uh, so we definitely have a number of specialized uh, medical treatments which might be applied. Now, because children with uh, um, Treacher Collins, you know, have so many surgeries and have so many negative uh, medical experiences, they may develop just basically fear of being in a hospital. And because of it, their behavior, of course, may be affected. And uh, and it's something where we don't think certainly about certain things like that, but you have a behavioral manifestation due to your medical condition, not because of something, you know, which is kind of neurologically or cognitively driven. It's something which is acquired. Right, very environmental. Yeah, and that really affects a whole family. When, When you have a baby that's having this many medical procedures and you usually have a a team of people involved, so many things are happening that that just because of that do not support the acquisition of normal language development. In addition to all of the physical things, we certainly start to see some environmental factors as well. Yeah, absolutely. And one more thing I wanted to add on top of that is that, of course, when we, again, coming back to these surgical interventions, We also have to be concerned about these children's general mental health and uh, how they react to kind of having so many, you know, not just so many surgeries, but being, you know, having appearance which with which they might be at risk for bullying from other children, you know, and other individuals looking at them a certain way. Um, Right. And, you know, Uh, that's a really unique perspective, Tatiana, that you get because of your background and especially because of the setting where you work right now that other therapists may not be as aware or as, um, I guess aware would be a great word for that, with with thinking about a child's mental health in in addition to looking at, you know, the developmental sequences that we normally look at as speech-language pathologists. But that is such a great point. And certainly with these babies that have obvious visual um, 
differences, that's just a huge, huge point that I, I, I think is so important for us to think about with all the um, social implications. Absolutely. And what's even more kind of uh, important to underscore is that there seems to be no cognitive effects, meaning there's no kind of a cognitive disabilities which are associated with Trisha Collins. So you basically have children with, um, you know, average cognition, but yet having right. such huge impact on their, you know, mental health due to all of these repeated surgeries and interventions and just which hugely impacts, of course, their general quality of life. Right, Something right. Something that we need and to so be... Know. Yeah. Right, and they understand what's really going on, whereas some of our other little guys with those cognitive deficits won't have as much awareness. So that's a really important point, too. Have you treated a child with uh, TCS? Tatiana, do you have personal experience with this? No, I do not. This is not my personal experience. This is actually directly from Emmy's wonderful write-up. I've treated kids with other syndromes, um, some of which I'm going to write about and others I'm going to review. I've treated kids with Noonan's and Angelman's and, of course, Down syndrome and Fragile X and things like that. And I've treated some rare disorders as well. Uh, I had kids with uh, TCS. In our, um, you know, in our setting, when I worked went, uh, for my CFY, uh, but it right. was other clinicians who had them at that time because I was right. the only treating therapist. So my right. exposure was basically cursory versus having personal right. experiences. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just to briefly go over before we move into Menkes, because I think that requires, because that's a very rare disorder which requires kind of a lot of recognition. When it, when it comes to speech and language issues, we're going to be talking about feeding interventions. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're also going to be talking about compensating for bilateral conductive hearing loss which needs to be managed as well. Uh, right. Of course, because we're talking about issues with uh, decreased jaw size and micrognathia, we're talking about speech sound disorders, of course. Right, right. And finally, even though cognition is okay, but because this population had very extensive hospitalizations in early childhood, we always worried about, you know, the effect of that on their language development to reduce opportunities right. to, you know, typical developmental experiences of peers. Right, exactly. You know? So, and I'm not going to go over surgical interventions because that could be looked up on, you know, on my website. Exactly. And then... Yeah. You know, of course, it goes without saying that we really need a multidisciplinary approach to this condition. And then, you know, I think what's very important to understand, and again, to underscore, when you have very quality and comprehensive long-term care by your multidisciplinary team, you can actually lead a fairly normal life, and you can be successful in your life. And that's right. a very important point when it when we think about because so many people have certain preconceived notions about looking at people with disabilities. You see somebody exactly. looking a certain way and you make these unfair assumptions regarding their cognitive functioning and regarding their quality exactly. of life. And we need to kind of really stop ourselves and just kind of say, hey, I don't know anything about that. I am just starting to work with this child. I need to research as much as I can so I can give this child absolutely non-biased and comprehensive services possible to 
put them in the place where they want to be. I just heard this expression recently from somebody, and I think it was used by one of the presenters at one of the presentations, but I run across it on one of the Facebook pages where somebody says, it's like, ask yourself this question, what can I do to make sure if this kid goes to college if they want to? And That's a great, great, great driving force for all of our jobs, don't you think? No matter what setting you work in, what can I do to make this child successful long term? What can I do right now for this child and this family? I I love that. I love it. I just wish I had the source of that expression. I know it was one of the (laughs) presenters in the field of AAC. I know it was somebody who recently presented in the field of AAC, and I just don't want to, and I can't recall that name, but I wish I could. The the quote certainly stuck in my head, but I got to find out and give that person credit because it's such a wonderful, wonderful quote, and it's so uplifting, you know? It is. It's really powerful. I'm going to hear Linda Burkhart tomorrow, Tatiana, so I'll Mm -hmm. let you know if she said that. Okay, sounds great. (laughs) Now, so Menkes. Now, Menkes is a review which comes, Menkes syndrome, it's a review which uh, which comes from one of my good colleagues who's located in the state of New York, and her name is Olga Z. Porterfield. Now, she works in a Clover Patch preschool, which is essentially very similar setting to where I worked when I just started my CFY. So again, Mm -hmm. there, she gets to encounter very, very exotic um, and unusual syndromes with whom 99.9% of us peace have never really um you know dealt with right right so um as i mentioned Menkes is november awareness month and um again much like did you watch it mnk has tons of different names um it's called Menkes disease and copper transport disease and steely hair disease and you you name it it was originally discovered mm-hmm. by a researcher named um you know, John Hans Menkes. Now, it's an X-linked recessive disorder. So because of that, because it's X-linked, it is uh, more common in males with females. If they have two defective mm-hmm. alleles, they can develop the disease. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the disorder is called by a very specific defective gene, and it's called ATP7A gene. What that gene does is regulates metabolism of copper in the body. Okay. So what Menkes does, it affects copper levels in the body, and it leads to copper deficiency. That's why it's such a kind of, um, you know, it's such a, you know, really kind of a um, very affecting type of a disorder. Now, right, lots of issues, yeah, as I'm reading through your um, review there on your website, lots and lots of issues. Lots of issues, but not only that, what's very interesting, what was very interesting to me, that supposedly for the first several weeks, six to eight weeks, these kids develop just fine. They develop normally. All of a sudden... Wow. There is that kind of a huge change, and they start experiencing these huge delays. You know, it's kind of a severe developmental delay and loss of early skills, early function. Right, and And so I bet that is just devastating for moms who really have gotten through that whole first few weeks and by six to eight weeks you're kind of settling in. I don't know if you're a mom, Tatiana, but that's kind of the time when you start to feel like, 
I can do this and, and we're all going to be okay and moms are feeling better and then all of a sudden to have a big decline uh, in what you've seen your baby already be able to do in two months, that would be really, really a, a shocking, I can imagine, to parents. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's one of those diseases which is so sad that uh, basically it's not a great survival rate, and um, Mm -hmm. there is a life expectancy typically of less than three years. Having said that, Menkes also has a number of mutations, so it's not something where it appears one way. It has a number of variations, and depending on the variation and mutation which is occurring in a child, what you get is you may have a longer life expectancy and uh, slightly, you know, kind of a mildly different manifestations. What's interesting is that it's caught very, very early and treated aggressively with copper injections. The results Mm -hmm. are positive, but you have to catch it very, very early. It has to be done aggressively and right away. You literally have to be, unfortunately, um, you really have to be, unfortunately, kind of really on top. Think about it. When you have something like that devastating happen and you're a parent, you don't know where to turn to, who to talk to, and it's just incredibly just it's just I can't even imagine what a poor parent might go through. You don't think about things like that right away. Right. But well, I, and I think a pediatrician mm-hmm. would really have to be on the ball because some of these things that I'm just reading about, I really think, you know, failure to thrive, weak muscle tone, I wonder how many times this could be uh, dismissed as something else and then not treat it again as aggressively as it should be to get a better outcome right at the beginning. So, yeah, that would be really, really scary. And but what's good about it in a sense, and I, well, good again, it's such a relative term. So, right. you know, right. uh, right. um, you know, so um, what's, what in a way – I guess recognizable is that kids are, you know, born with very, I mean, kids get this very, very distinctive silvery type of hair, unfortunately, you know. Something that a pediatrician would notice right away. Absolutely. because, Because by the time your symptoms occur, your, you know, the child's symptoms occur. It's been approximately six to eight weeks. And, of course, we know when babies are born, not, not everybody's blessed with gray hair, you know. Right. But perhaps, <laughs> perhaps because their hair has been described as kind of a strikingly peculiar, unusual, okay. pinky, colorless, or steel colored. And because of that, perhaps this could be, you know, something that the parents could be alerted to and then aggressively follow up. And, of course, what I highly recommend to just about everybody, and, and this is something that I, I, you asked me before, Laura, if I have any kids. I do not yet, as of yet. But if certainly if I'm planning on having children, I would definitely strongly consider genetic testing. Right. And I also recommend to, to people who, of course, have no objections to that, I strongly recommend genetic testing, even if, uh, you know, even if you are even if you are planning on keeping the baby no matter what the reason why i mentioned that is because it's very good to be prepared 
because knowing in advance, you will have a child with Down syndrome. And plan in advance regarding what type of interventions you will be using and planning for that child the minute that child is born. Because our best defense, I, I mean, I'm sorry, our best kind of our course of action, you know, for anything is appropriate preparation. Exactly. And no matter what your views on that, and that's a little bit controversial. Absolutely. With, uh, all of the different uh, belief systems that different people have. And again, I love that you interjected, even if you're planning on having the baby no matter what. So this discussion goes well beyond <laughs> yeah, absolutely. that moms would have to make in that prenatal period. But I, I totally understand what you're saying and appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. It's important to bring that up. And of course, because every, everybody, every individual's choice is, of course, different. But be that as it may, we just need to be prepared. And that's important for planning future everything. Everything. That's true. Preparation is our greatest resource. So to continue, (laughs) you know, you know, um, so to continue, um, what's really kind of, um, you know, the statistics on incidents really significantly vary. And I'm looking at these statistics right now, and they're completely different depending on the country. And uh, although it's very interesting how in Australia they are reported to be much higher. And wow. this actually gave me an opportunity to study about the founder effect. Now, I actually have heard of that term, but never really kind of bothered to look it up. So this was mm-hmm. something that I looked up and I actually added to this presentation, that it's actually the founder effect is fascinating uh, condition where a new population is established based on, from a small number of individuals from a larger population, which, you know, because in terms of even how Australia was established in the first place, you know, because, you know, in the olden days. So it's very interesting how it may be high because of that. Now, it's actually the founder effect, it's – it's it's very interesting uh, because now that I'm recalling, this summer I was over at Massachusetts and one of their islands, and I have to I forgot which one. I believe it was Nantucket, if I'm not mistaken. I think I'm pretty sure. It had a you know when it was originally established, there was a huge number of kids coming out of there with uh, hearing loss who were basically born mm-hmm. deaf. And the citizens kind of didn't really give it much thought why, you know, that's happening. They thought it was the norm. What started being very interesting, once people started leaving the island and the population started diluting more, it wasn't seen when people moved off or intermarried into other families or it was significantly dramatically reduced. Wow. So there's something to be said for a variation in the genetic pool, of course. Yeah, how about that? So it's very, very interesting. So what's very interesting uh, to me also um, was when I started finding out more about speech and language issues associated with Menkes because it has such rare incidence and low life expectancy, what uh, Olga you know, the author of this article, what she did, she actually described what she's doing with her particular child when it comes to Menkes because she really kind of had uh, no previous research and uh, data right. to go up on. So this right. is kind and of I love her know, personal take on that. And that's why I, I was even asking you with Treacher Collins, have you treated a child with this? Because I think it does add a new level of uh, 
just experience when someone actually has a child on their caseload or have we worked with a child with that specific diagnosis in the past. And I love that she's described exactly what's going on with her little client. Yeah, absolutely. I thought so too. And it was very interesting that she, you know, explained that, you know, she described him as a very happy baby. You know, he's great, great mood, wide grin, which is phenomenal. And then, um, unfortunately, because, you know, he has great communicative intent, as very clearly evident, he has, you know, motor limitations and cognitive limitations. So it's difficult. So we're talking about shifting of eye gaze to eye pointing and things like that. And unfortunately, because of previously discussed limitations, it's not always reliable in terms of his response. But he is able to uh, press a single switch or speech generating device with physical support at elbow, which is great. And Mm -hmm. um, so that's very, very good. And what's, again, I really like the fact that um, she really specified, even though it's a poor prognosis, you know, you can, you know, if you kind of look around, and I tried researching about Menkes. Um, there is a life expectancy depending on your mutation is increased. Now, it's very difficult to tell to how many years. But like, for example, August student is already actually, uh, he's actually, I believe, he's almost five. There is actually, I just received, um, I just received information from her, I believe, where he's not almost four, he's almost five, so I have to correct that in the article. That means he's already, you know, exceeded expectations, which is wonderful. And I'm really, right, you know, right. excited for him, and it's 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 absolutely phenomenal. I'm actually just gonna double check uh, on the on the on the age because yes, and because uh, this is from a correspondence. It was um, he's gonna be five years old next month. Yeah, that's great, and that that is a great great outcome for when the general prognosis is for less than that so that's great yeah absolutely and I love just reading through and again if you're listening and you kind of missed at the beginning uh, Tatiana's website is smartspeechtherapy.com and she's done a whole spotlight with guest bloggers who have written about these various syndromes and the speech pathologist that she's referencing is, is named Olga Porterfield, and she's given very personal experience, um, documented there her treatment plan and, and what they hoped would happen and then complications. And so, again, you can check that out for yourself. But that's really interesting reading. Right, and another one was Amy Losey. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, L-O-C-Y. And she gained her experience, a lot of other screening official anomalies in um in uh, Brazil. Now, just to let you know who did whatever syndromes, because I want to talk about a different syndrome. De George was done by Lauren Lauer, also mm-hmm. very comprehensive, very nice job she did. Down syndrome let's was talk done about by. Let's, mm-hmm. let's okay. talk about. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead and give. Go ahead and give your plugs to your special guest bloggers, Tatiana, because I know that's I, important. I know. I just wanted to do that for just a second because they all did such a wonderful job. I just really want to kind of plug the heck, you know, out right. of them because they did a great job. That. So, did George yeah. was um. So, did George was done by Amy Lauer. Now, da- I'm sorry. Sorry, Lauren, Lauren Lauer. Yeah. 
I was just talking about Amy. I apologize. Down syndrome, Don, was by a colleague blogger, the one who's very, very well known to me, and it's Rachel North. She actually has a Queen's Speech blog. I believe Uh both um, Amy and Lauren also have blogs. Unfortunately, they kind of didn't include the information there, but both of them do have blogs as well, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, you know, we can certainly uh, check them out. Now, Olga Portefeld did Menkes, and um, I had another one on spinal muscle atrophy done by a wonderful colleague who lives actually in my own in my state right now, um, Rose Ann Kesting. And she's actually in the state of New Jersey. We're really located not that far off from one another. She did a wonderful post mm-hmm. on spinal muscle atrophy. And she's also a pretty well-known blogger. She runs um, a blog called um, Cooking Up Good Speech with Speech Snacks. Mm-hmm. And that's I've her. read her before. Now, yeah. if we right. may... Before we talk about the George, I kind of wanted to talk about one acquired syndrome in which I extensively specialize in working. One of the reasons why I wanted to bring it up is because it is by far one of the most common and yet completely misidentified, poorly understood syndromes literally on the face of the earth. And I'm talking about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And I have children with that. By far the most kind of... uh, It is by far the most misunderstood disorder. There are so many myths about this disorder that I couldn't resist, and I really wanted to kind of explain what it it is. Especially recently, we've had uh, several people kind of um, talk about that, minimize it in very negative light. There was recently a book which came out by an economist who basically said, oh, disregard everything. You can drink while you're pregnant. Nothing is going to happen. Yeah, uh, there was a huge controversy. No, there was a huge controversy. It was an economist who kind of, you know, uh, wrote that and actually during the course of a conversation... And what's an economist doing commenting on that? I mean, what point of reference? I don't get that. I don't I don't know about that, and I hope I don't get sued for saying that, but whatever. I think that I haven't heard about that, and I love that this is your passion. So let's just talk about that instead, Tatiana. And have you written about some of this that you're going to share on your site as well? Or oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. I've written about it on a number, in a number of levels. Um, I actually have um, an article coming out next month with the Adoption Advocate, and that's going mm-hmm. to be on recognizing the risk of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders in internationally adopted children. I have and written for... That's before. huge. That's mm-hmm. huge. So many children that I've worked with that have been internationally adopted have gone on to get that diagnosis. When, when parents, adoptive parents may have assisted that, Certainly, as time went on, we've certainly seen those manifestations uh, with the children that I've that I've worked with. Right, and I've also written on how to ask the right questions regarding fetal alcohol spectrum disorders for uh, Adoption Today magazine, and that's actually already been uh, reposted on my blog. Um, I've, so I've also done two presentations for SpeechPathology.com. And I also have a number mm-hmm. of products in my online store dealing explicitly with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Because what people need to understand, it's not just internationally adopted children. Any child here in institutionalization has huge, inc- 
increased risk for that as well because we have so many kids in uh, institutions right now and in foster care and, you know, in uh, child protective services care and all these places and kids living in kind of abused and neglected kind of households and things like that. Mm -hmm. All these kids are at risk because essentially what people kind of need to understand is that, yes, genetics you know, plays a huge part. And yes, some people are very lucky. They have excellent genetics. And even if they drink during pregnancy, the results might not be as, you know, the results may not be as strong. And that's called, it's an area called epigenetics, where you have interactions of genetics and environment, which may create unexpected outcomes. For example, when researchers did studies in mice, they found that some mice was really heavily, um, you know, affected by strains of kind of um, um, what is it, ethanol or ethyl, for some reason I can't recall, but others were virtually unaffected. But what we need to understand that you can't tell until that kid is born. So it's just better policy not to drink, period. Or if you're planning on conceiving, just stop kind of drinking a couple of months in advance. You can pick up your habits afterwards. You know, booze can wait. (laughs) You know? Because what essentially happens is something that that's going to be the quote of the show. Booze can wait. I no, but it. seriously, okay. booze can wait because, for example, I'm you know I I enjoy a glass of wine or a glass of champagne as much as anybody else. But if I'm planning on right. getting pregnant, I'm going to make sure nothing is in that right. system for the duration of that pregnancy. Nursing, you know, it's it's kind of a exactly. simple common fact. You eliminate, you know, shall, let's say you eliminate raw foods, you eliminate fur, right. foods with mercury, you eliminate coffee, right. you want to avoid risks of miscarriage. Try to eliminate no. the greatest strategy. Mm-hmm. No strategy, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Tell us about, tell us uh, with fetal alcohol syndrome, what are some things if a child has not been diagnosed, and particularly for those of us who specialize in early intervention, what are some things that might, we might see? Okay. Well, to begin with, um, you know, when we get these kids in early intervention and we're, they're up for assessment, we really need to, before we even look at a child, which is what I do, we need to get very detailed case history on the child because a lot of answers may be hiding in that case history. Now, right. obvious signs and symptoms, obvious signs and symptoms might be failure to thrive, very delayed developmental milestones, very, very irritable, difficult to soothe babies, babies with very kind of small heads and very small growth development. It's also important to understand that these kind of physical manifestations, the, the, you know, the the close-set eyes, the small... you know, the kind of a absence of the midline in the nose, the thin, um, you know, the thin philtrum, fil- uh, uh, kind of a kind of a absence of that upper lip group. Uh, groove. Mm-hmm. They're all such minor manifestations, and they only occur in a very small percentage of kids. Because what we ended up, um, you know, researchers ended up finding out is that these kind of physical signs of typical FAS, basically they occur maybe between uh, day 17 and 20 of gestation. So there is a very small window to develop that. Right. And if somebody was right. doing drugs, for example, during that time, or not drinking alcohol, you're not going to have them. Right. But you're still right. going to have very extensive cognitive and kind of, a, you know, cognitive and kind of neurological type of deficits, even if it's, right. you know, affecting your central nervous system. So right. 
when babies are little, we see basically just kind of a, almost like failure to thrive and failure of growth on multiple levels, and we're seeing right. that. And then they age, and they seem to be doing a little bit better. And again, um, those are the kids who in the school system, typically as early as preschool, start exhibiting fairly significant behavioral deficits, and they're the really kids who are... Even as toddlers, oh, sorry. you'll see a lot. Even as toddlers, you'll see a lot of things that look like extreme sensory uh, differences. In that these children again uh, have a hard, hard time adapting to uh, change in the environment, and, and specifically with a therapist, they just have a really hard time attending, a really hard time learning, a really hard time remembering from session to session, and it's the expectations, again, you have to really adjust for those kinds of kids. And it's, it's, I think, hard to differentiate from those kids who just have those really delicate sensory systems. And again, I guess it's all kind of the same in that there's a neurological difference there, but the behavioral piece is huge for those kids. And, and we spot that as early interventionists, often, you know, again, earlier than other other professionals might see that. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and I've even done a number of materials with that in mind in terms of behavioral interventions for these kids. But there's also what's very important to know that educational approaches and intervention approaches with these children do differ. Because even when you have kids with uh, significant language delays and disorders, because these kids with FAS have such a huge difficulty learning from experience, we really need to vary our approach and differentiate it. And we kind of, uh, some, um, some researchers kind of uh, in this field advocate kind of a brain-based approach. I believe it's right. Diane Malbin who specializes in using that. But coming back to the most essential factor, we need to recognize what the diagnosis is. If we don't right. have a diagnosis, we can't differentiate the approach we're going right. to use. And that, right. unfortunately, may create serious negative results for the child because we yeah. need to individualize our instruction. That's why it's called individualized education plan right. you know, right. or individualized family plan. But most people, because I had this argument with a number of people, and unfortunately, a lot of times, you know, I hear that, and it's very sad to me when I do. I hear that from school-based professionals, and uh, I hear this kind of mantra. We are all, you know, all of these kids receive services. Diagnosis is not as important as the symptoms are. Well, or something along those lines, or their variation thereof. Having said that, okay, but what if the symptoms are due to a completely different cause than what you believe? Because you can have symptoms of inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity, and they could come from bazillion sources. But depending on causation, you will kind of differentiate your approach and provide the best services. Because you can have inattention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity with symptom with FAS versus ADHD. But if you think it's ADHD, you will never treat it appropriately. You won't. Because popping pills for this kid will not make a difference. And I think that's a huge point. I think it I think it's a huge point. But I do understand why a lot of early interventionists are afraid to really push the diagnostic factor, Tatiana, because so many moms and dads are so scared 
especially in this in this earliest period of therapy, that they do not want their child inappropriately labeled or diagnosed. And so I get that, and I I want to meet parents where they are with that. That you bring up some some really important information that you're not you, you may have a treatment that's completely inappropriate unless you have the correct diagnosis, especially when there are medical interventions like medication versus no medication. Right, because in the, I'm not disputing. I mean, there's a, a, working in a setting where I'm working. I've seen some fantastic right. results of medication. I am not an opponent right. of medication. I don't want people to misunderstand me. Having said that, right. Right. I am a proponent of medication being prescribed appropriately in appropriate amounts. Exactly. exactly. And I do think you have a really unique perspective because of where you work with your setting versus someone who is a general, who, who sees children with, with non-specific developmental issues, say they work for a state early intervention program, their experience will probably be vastly different than where you're coming from. Absolutely. The one last piece I wanted to kind of add about medication, just um, because I'm kind of on that, I wanted to point out that not all the kids I work with in this setting are actually on medication. What really is more successful oftentimes than even medication, and this is according to um, the psychiatrist I work with, who are, by the way, absolutely excellent, what's really more successful are appropriate behavioral interventions. If you're using the correct behavioral interventions, and no, I'm not talking about ABA, before people start thinking, I'm talking about true social cognitive intervention approaches, which are applicable to child and are based on the child, you can have absolutely amazing results as long as you have that specific type of a approach which is differentiated per child. Right, right. And I so appreciate you saying that. And I do think that we can't, write a treatment plan based on diagnosis alone. And I love that you've talked about that over and over and over. And I love that you've talked about even though a child has a specific, you know, genetic alteration, we still have to look for those strengths and we still have to look for those other ways to compensate. And that may be very different from child to child, even with the same diagnosis. So I love that you've talked about that today. Thank you. I really kind of, you know, appreciate that. So um, just to kind of, uh, you know, you know, I know we only have about seven minutes going, so I wanted to kind of, uh, kind of, so I kind of wanted to wrap up. I could, you know, I could certainly talk about, you know, a little bit about the Dijewich syndrome, or we could just kind of simply wrap, wrap up, just kind of in general. Just, uh, what would you prefer? Let's wrap up. Let's just wrap up in general, Tatiana, and we'll have okay. to have you back on really soon to finish this uh, with these other. I don't want to leave our audience kind of hanging, but I would like for you just to summarize. And, I, again, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate you bringing your personal knowledge and your experience, which, again, is, is probably really different from lots of our listeners so that they can um, benefit from, from that different perspective. Okay, and that's and that's great. And I would love to be actually um, back on again because this is I'm very passionate about this. This is my very very you kind are, of a favorite. And I love it. Yeah. I mean, my mom, I mean, I basically, basically, I should have. I, I seriously, I'm seriously considering, uh, you know, tattooing the word differential diagnosis on my arm. <laughs> I won't because I don't like tattoos. But if I had to ever consider tattoo, I think that would be my choice. Because I'm all for it. 
working in working it's just and I think working and it, it started from the beginning it started with that very first setting where I've worked um, for the school for medically fragile children I've seen so many kids being kind of you know carefully diagnosed one genetic disorder ruled out another genetic disorder ruled out constantly being right. kind of assessed the testing and it was very clearly evident if we think it's something else, we may not provide appropriate intervention. Now, right. we as speech-language pathologists, we really kind of need to understand the potential etiologies of communication and swallowing disorders, and that includes genetic disorders. And this is from the right. actual position statement. I can even quote from which page? It's page six, you know? <laughs> I'm serious. Dated 2007. We need to know what we are treating. We need to know. We yeah. can't be, eh, I'll figure it out along the way. I am just, I'm seeing the manifestations. I'm seeing the symptoms. Well, I'm going to address them. No, it's not as simple as that. Don't miss important variables. Yeah, Don't I totally agree with that. And you, you wrote a great article about this regarding childhood apraxia of speech and how, Children have come to you with the neurologist who's, or another specialist who's given that diagnosis with knowing very little about a child's communicative system, and so that often can be misdiagnosed by someone who has the child's best interest at heart. They want them to get speech therapy. They recognize this is a speech problem, yet they really don't have the skills and expertise as a speech-language pathologist would, and so it can be misdiagnosed and the kid can come to you, um, again, with incorrect information. Absolutely. And here's what I wanted to add on that topic. Since I'm, I'm also in another uni position, I actually do lecture to psychology and psychiatry fellows. And as part of those guest lectures, I am actually privy to what information they read prior to me lecturing right. to them. And I can tell right. you, the information contained in the medical uh, textbooks could at best be described as pitiful and outdated. Exactly. I actually and I know exactly how little information they get on this topic. And yet, because by the virtue of the fact that they have the labels MD or PhD right. attached behind their right. name, a lot of people put a lot of clout. And the important thing here exactly. is respe respect the medical professional, but exercise your own judgment and experience as a clinical professional or as a parent for that matter to see whether or not their impressions and opinion make sense to you. And if they don't, seek a second opinion or research more about that's, this matter. Uh, that's exactly right. And I've treated so many pediatricians' children uh, here in, in Louisville, and so many of them tell me time after time after time, you know, we received so little information about development uh, of communication skills, and actually here at the University of Louisville, it's a one-hour lecture about language acquisition, and it's optional. And that is so scary to wow. speech pathologists because the, the pediatricians are our, our first line of referral. And if they're not educated enough to recognize an issue, they it's a big problem. Go yeah, be able to identify all the children that they should reach. And so, again, I've talked about that a lot on this show, and our regular listeners, that's not new information because I've shared that a lot because it's been so 
uh, it just it just surprising that our pediatricians would get so little real information. And you're you're finding this education that our doctors receive about communication disorders in general is is Sad. far less than what we think it is. Far less. Yeah. Absolutely. And that is not to say there are some phenomenal pediatricians. I've worked with oh, one. Yeah. She's fantastic. You know, right. uh, she is absolutely phenomenal. She's so well-educated, and she's also a presenter. Her name is Dr. Ala Gordon. If anybody from New Jersey, I'm going to plug her in briefly. But she's <laughs> phenomenal. She really knows her stuff, but she herself right. tells me. This is, she's like, this is my perspective. This is what we learn by far inadequate, she said. I went, I started doing this and I started connecting with others because I felt the paucity of resources in our field in what we do regarding typical language development and acquisition because the information right. we're providing to parents is not adequate. And it best be right. described as a wait and see approach because we're hoping the right. problems are going to go away. And for and those of, of us who specialize in birth to three, that, again, we miss so many children because the kids are not identified. And that early intervention is just critical in that child's entire trajectory. You know, without that early therapy, that birth to three window or birth to five window is just critical. So I love that you talked about that as well. Tatiana, we share so many of the same passions, and so I've loved having you on today as a guest, and I'd love to have you back to talk not only about these syndromes, share more about fetal alcohol syndrome, but then we should do a show about international adoption. And, oh, and I would love that, Laura. Please, please, for. please, I'm begging you. I want to do that so <laughs> badly. When you do, so I have badly. to beg. The invitation is open, and I will gladly schedule that show. And you've been such a fun guest, Tatiana. Thank you so much for coming on. And, again, I love hearing someone talk who is just as uh, – impassioned and fired up about this kind of stuff as I get and as I'm sure our listeners get too. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being a wonderful guest. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure to be here. And thank you so much for being such a wonderful host. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, well, that's it for today's show. I'm going to get Tatiana scheduled for an upcoming show um, because I know we're going to want to hear more from her. All right, that does it for this week. Thanks so much. Bye.